Miss Debbie, Richard and Karen. I swear if my wife didn't tell my head to stay on my neck, um, I'd lose it. So she keeps me going. She is. She is my helpmate. Most excellent. Okay, what, and this is going, I'm going to wait for an answer. I'm a lot more stubborn than you. And a lot less hungry than some of you. I don't eat lunch until like 1.30, so I've got all day. What is the primary task of the church? What's first? What, what should take precedence over everything else in the life of the church? Okay. Preach the gospel. Good. Make disciples. That's good. Light to the Lost? All excellent answers. I really wish that's the answer I had written down. Hebrews talks about encouraging one another as we meet together. Okay. And all the more, I think, people stay early. That's right. Really, really good answers. And, and you're not, what's that? Put God first. All of this, everything you mentioned, falls under the umbrella of what is first. And it's worship. Worship is the primary task of the church. Our responsibility is to worship. Worship is our primary task. As John Stott puts it, the church is essentially a worshiping, praying community. It's often said that the church's priority task is evangelism, but it's not really so. He continues, worship takes precedence over evangelism, partly because love for God is the first commandment and love for neighbor the second. Worship takes precedence over evangelism, partly because long after the church's evangelistic task is completed, God's people will continue to worship him eternally. Worship takes precedence over evangelism, partly because evangelism is itself an aspect of worship, a priestly duty where converts become an offering acceptable to God. Worship takes precedence. Worship is the primary task of the church. Our church has a mission statement, whether you realize that or not, and it's pretty simple. It's three words. We exist to worship, proclaim, and serve. Those three words will be stamped on everything. It's on the front of your bulletin. Uh, it's, it's all over, all over the website. We exist to worship first, proclaim, and serve. And just in case you're just now seeing this, these three words have been stamped on everything for like six years. So if we haven't made this obvious, uh, we should do a better job. We exist to worship, proclaim, and serve. These three words, each of these three words are important. Uh, each a large part of what I believe we are meant to be about. But there's a reason that worship is first. Worship is and must be what we do and who we are. We must be marked by worship. What we do as a church, which is where Paul's letter to Timothy turns now in chapter 2, what we do as a church must give priority to worship. After urging Timothy to, to counter false teaching in chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy about the public worship of the church. All of chapter 2 is about the public worship of the church. Paul likes to urge Timothy. 
Uh, and maybe that's what it takes. Maybe Timothy is so timid that he needs a kick in the seat of the pants to do what needs to be done, to get going. It could be that Paul merely wants to highlight the importance of what he's writing. And so he says, I urge you, Timothy. He, he urged Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3, to stay there in Ephesus, to combat theological error, false teaching. And now Paul urges Timothy to give priority to public worship. The emphasis here in chapter 2 on the priority of worship has particular importance for us who are called evangelical people. If we fail to take public worship seriously, if we treat this time on Sundays flippantly, if we meet this moment with just casual commitment, We are less than the fully biblical Christians that we claim to be. If worship is low on our list of priorities, then our time of corporate gathered worship will be disorganized and thoughtless, or maybe dull and repetitive, maybe unreflective, possibly even disrespectful if worship is low on our list of priorities. I wrote this question mostly for me. When's the last time we thought about what we do here as we gather for worship? The order of things, the, the goings-on of Sunday morning. Why, why do we do what we do? What is indispensable? And what can we do away with? Think about it. Must we have A, B, C, D, and E every week? And if we do need to have A, B, C, D, and E every week, do they have to be in that order? It's worth thinking about. We should really give serious thought to our public worship. Again, we will not hold on to the past way of doing things as the only way of doing things. Nor are we jumping into the future into some really lame attempt to be trendy. We don't care about either of those. We are striving to be faithful to God and to his word in this moment. Right? That's the goal, faithfulness to God. Here and now. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul alludes to two main parts of the local church's worship. And these two parts divide the worship in half. And I'll say you are here for the easier part of this chapter. Uh, Next week is going to be real interesting. So uh, pray for me and come to church and um, bring bring some rotten tomatoes and you can throw them at It's fine. 1 Timothy 2 is all about public worship, and it's divided in half. Paul considers first the scope of our worship, and then the second half, what we'll cover next week, the the conduct of our worship. So, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and if you are able and willing, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, I urge... Then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. 
May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. As I read these verses, I only sort of kind of tried to vocally highlight an important theme throughout these seven verses. You likely picked up on it as we read without my attempt to help. What sticks out in this paragraph is the scope of the church's responsibility. God's plan and our duty concern everybody. Four times the same truth is highlighted. Prayers are to be offered for everyone God desires everyone to be saved. Jesus died for everyone, and we must proclaim the gospel to, any guesses? See, there you go, you're awake, everyone. There's no doubt in my mind, or anyone else's mind, that this repetition is deliberate. It's inspired and deliberate. These four truths belong together in Paul's mind. Because of God's desire and Christ's death, because they concern everyone, the church's prayer and our proclamation of the gospel must concern everyone too. The church, both local and global, is responsible to worship the triune God. And the beginning of doing this, the beginning of this, means that we pray for everyone. We pray for everyone. Paul mentions four different types of worship in verse 1. Petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. These are almost synonymous. Most commentators don't even bother defining the words because they're so close together. They can't be neatly distinguished from one another. What we know is that each of these words concerns prayer. Making requests for specific needs, bringing those in view before God, appealing boldly on their behalf with thankfulness for them. Paul uses four different words, but he uses them to make one point that these prayers would be made for everyone. For everyone. Circle that word. Everyone, all people, whatever it is in your Bible. This is a less than subtle rebuke to tribalism or nationalism or racism or supremacist thought of any kind. We don't get to pick and choose who we minister to. We don't get to pick and choose who we pray for. It's everyone, no matter who they are. If our church's prayers focus only on our church or on those closest to us and most like us and not those far away from here or separated from us by any number of factors, if we only pray for us and never pray for them, we're missing something for everyone. In particular, Paul directs the churches to pray for kings and all of those in authority. This is a remarkable instruction since at that time, no Christian ruler existed anywhere in the world. There was no ruler of any place that was a Christian. When Paul tells Timothy and the churches to pray for kings, the reigning emperor was Nero. Nero. Nero hated Christians. He met them with cruelty and hostility and systemic persecution. He'd nail them Christians just for the sake that they're Christians, just for the fact that they believe in Jesus, he would nail them to crosses. Or he'd light them on fire for funsies. Literally, just for fun. Light a Christian on fire, make a street lamp out of them. That's what he thought. Sometimes he'd take a bunch of Christians, hang them up, light them on fire, to light up his garden at nighttime. His garden needed some light, and so he'd light Christians on fire. It's the truth. Nero Paul says, Paul says, in the time of Nero, in the reign of Nero, 
pray for kings and everyone in authority. It's clear the early Christians are instructed to pray for all people, even for Nero. Pray for these pagan leaders, Paul says. Pray for the kings that you suffer under. Pray for the leader you don't agree with. Pray for the ruler you don't approve of. This is a startling command. It's a jarring order, especially in the hyper-politicized climate of today. 2020 is upon us, and all I can manage in view of the election season is an ugh, right? That, that, that's all I've got for the, the next election cycle. However, if you are a Christian living in the good old U.S. of A., you must pray for the president, regardless of what you think of him or his policies. You must. Some of you are nodding your heads, but I have to wonder if I was preaching this sermon four years ago, if it would have been as easy for your head to move in that direction. I, I, I doubt it. Did you pray for the previous president or the one before that or the fellow before that? Is your praying for the next president contingent upon what political party he or she belongs to? We cannot pick and choose when to obey the Lord's command. We can't take it when we like it and leave it when we don't. We are not a partisan people, and I will never let us become a partisan people. We are not a partisan people. We are a praying people. You hear? That's what, that's what I say to my kids when I tell them, you, you hear me? <laughs> it's that important. First Timothy, the two first couple of verses. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. For all people, for kings and all those in authority. We are called to pray for all of those in authority. And so we pray for President Trump, just as we were meant to pray for Presidents Obama and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Reagan and Carter and Ford and Nixon and Johnson and Kennedy and uh, Eisenhower and Truman and Hoover and Roosevelt. I don't know if anyone is alive during Hoover. Maybe I think John Huff was alive back. I think he was like 20 years old when Hoover was president. So, so John Huff was meant to pray for it doesn't matter who is in authority. It doesn't matter who is in charge. We pray for them. We have to. We need to pray for our president and our vice president, our governor, congressmen, our representatives. We need to pray for our mayor, our city council, all of our government officials, no matter who they are and no matter what you think of them personally. I'll give you a little secret, tell you a little secret. It doesn't matter what you think of them personally doesn't matter. doesn't. We do this. We pray for them so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We pray for kings and for those in authority so that they would preserve peace. As they preserve peace, we'll be granted religious freedom, ideally. Uh, freedom to exercise our faith, freedom to evangelize, to spread the gospel without interruption. Our hope, all of our hope, is in Christ. We do not put our hopes in chariots and horses. We don't put our hopes in elected officials. Scrap the idea that any elected official gives us hope. Nah. <laughs> I don't even have a word for it. Our hope is in Christ, that he would grant us peace 
in whatever land we live. Our prayer is for our leaders that they might administer justice and pursue peace. It's our job. We pray for everyone. We pray for everyone because of God's desire for everyone. The reason the church should reach out and embrace all people in its prayers is that it's reflective of God's desire. Of course, we know that prayer has to be directed to the God who hears and answers and is powerful to act. We can't pray to the piano and expect anything to happen. We pray to the God, the one true God, for others, and we pray for everyone, all people, from all backgrounds, socioeconomic strata, it doesn't matter. We pray for everyone, and we're motivated to pray for everyone because of God's passion for everyone. We read in verse 3 that our praying is good that it pleases God our Savior. Our concern is not only to please God, but to find our motivation for all that we do tied to his heart. When you begin to pray for all kinds of people in the world to be saved, when you start praying for Jews and Gentiles, friends and your enemies, Republicans and Democrats, reached and unreached peoples, when you pray for everyone, your heart is coming in line for the heart of God himself in line with the heart of God himself, because God desires their salvation. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is good, pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now we need to be clear about what this means and what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. We're not universalists. Uh, This isn't a verse supporting universalism. There is No passage in the Bible, neither this passage nor any other passage, that teaches such a silly thing, that everyone's going to be saved, that we're all, we're not universalists. Are you with me? Got it? Not everyone's going to be saved. The Bible is clear. We are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and only those who trust in his salvation will experience eternal life. All will not be saved, but this does not mean that God's will has somehow been thwarted. From beginning to end, the Bible is clear. God is sovereign over all things, and his will cannot be thwarted. Job says this. After everything Job faced, the end of Job, he says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So we're about to get into some really deep, heavy theology. So let me explain. Nope, there is too much. Let me sum up. In the Bible... There is what's known as the doctrine of election, God's choosing individuals or people to inherit salvation through Jesus Christ. God's election is clear throughout the Bible. God chose Israel to be his people in the Old Testament, and Jesus said as plain as day in John chapter 15, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. There's the doctrine of election on the one hand, and there's also the offer of the gospel. Jesus himself invited all people to come to him. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And then he said that his ministry was limited to those whom the Father had given him out of this world. On one occasion, Jesus said, you refuse to come to me. And on another occasion, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So why is it that some people do not come to Christ? Is it that they will not or that they cannot? Jesus taught both. He did. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, 
universal offer and electing purpose, the all and the some, the cannot and the will not, both are parts of this unresolvable paradox. And we have to confess that our little minds are unable to resolve this seeming paradox. What we know for certain is this. God loves all people, every kind of person, from every station and class, every nation and tongue. In Second Peter, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In the Old Testament, through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord says, Hey, Ezekiel, say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Because of God's love and God's desire for everyone, we pray. We don't know who will or who can. Only God does. There is one God, and he desires the salvation of all people. There's not one God for one group of people and another God for this group of people so that all kinds of people can worship all kinds of gods. No, there's one God, the God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible, and he deserves the praise of all people. So we gather together to declare that there is one God, right? One God, not a bunch of gods. And it's not that all these different religions and churches worship the same God. If you're not worshiping the triune God of the Bible, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping a false God. We, we come together, we gather to declare that our God is greater and stronger and higher than any other. And we pray and we long for the day when people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue will bow down and worship him because he's worthy. We pray for everyone because of God's desire for everyone and Christ's death for everyone. What Paul writes to Timothy here probably seems pretty basic to us. It's pretty basic stuff, unlike next week, but that's for next week. Okay. It's elementary, but it's as incredible as it is simple. Look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. There's only your God and only one mediator between him and us. And therefore, only one way to salvation. There's only one way to be rescued. And that's through the man, Jesus Christ, who willingly gave himself to be handed over to death for our sake. The word ransom here in this verse refers to the price that would be paid for the rescue release of a prisoner. I should move on. All I can think about as I go through this, I really wanted to throw this quote out there, but it, it's from a movie that no one's seen, Ransom by Mel Gibson. Give me back my son. So I don't know. Every time I read the word ransom, I think Mel Gibson yelling at the. We used to prank phone call people and just say that line, give me back my son, and then hang. Okay, never mind. Your pastor is one strange fella. So I, that's where my mind goes. I don't know what to tell you. The word ransom refers to the price that would be paid to release a prisoner. God, the one who is completely holy in all of his ways, completely just in all of his judgments, 
That God, the holy, just God, stands over us as condemned sinners. We are completely deserving of his judgment. Do you know what you deserve? You deserve nothing good. You deserve judgment and condemnation and death. You do. We cannot rescue ourselves. The price that we would have to pay to ransom ourselves is our very life. The wages of sin is death. So we could pay the price for our sinfulness, but we'd die and be forever separated from God. We cannot save ourselves. We desperately need a mediator to pay our ransom. Enter Jesus. Jesus is alone able to identify with both parties. No one else is qualified to represent both God and man. Jesus can identify with God because he is God. And Jesus can identify with humanity since he is himself human. Jesus came to pacify the wrath of God toward us and replace it with God's blessing and favor. Jesus stepped into an infinitely wide gap and he removed the cause of separation by paying an infinite price. An act that Jesus did that made moving mountains look like mere child's play. Jesus bridged a gap no one else could. He is uniquely qualified to stand in the middle and to bring us together. He's the only go-between, the only mediator. Jesus, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men. The man gave himself. He was born to die. Born to die for us. Jesus is the mediator, the man, the ransom. There is no other. No one else possesses or has ever possessed the necessary qualifications to mediate between God and sinners. We don't pray to Mary. She was a mere mortal, sinful, just as needy for Jesus as anyone else. We don't pray to this religious leader or that. We don't pray to the saints. We don't worship anyone but Christ, the mediator, the man, the ransom. No one else in the entire universe is qualified to mediate between God and man. You understand? Do you understand how true and exclusive this is? And do you understand how glorious and inclusive this is? Jesus stood in between all of us, sinners and a holy God, and he made the way possible for us. That's some glorious truth. We pray for everyone because of God's desire for everyone and Jesus' death for everyone. Because of those things, we proclaim the gospel to everyone. This is the obvious implication of everything Paul has said so far, and it's the goal, it's the outworking of our theology and our worship. Our gathering is not an end unto itself. You can't just come to church on Sunday morning and check off that box and say, yep, good, see you next week. That's not it. If we gather for worship once a week or twice a week, if you go ahead and count youth group or Wednesday night Bible study, if we gather and then after we meet, we go home unchanged, unmotivated, uninspired to go out and preach the gospel, we should just fold it up, sell the building to a quilt shop, or maybe Terry wants it for a second funeral home. I I don't know. It's no good if it stops here. 
Our worship, our prayers, our theology should motivate us and move us out of the pew and into the places where people live and work and play. And for this purpose was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Paul is all things. He's herald, apostle, and teacher. But nobody is all three today. There are no apostles living today. Apostle is a term designated for the eyewitnesses of the historic Jesus, especially those who witnessed his resurrection. Paul was an apostle, uh, though one abnormally born. No apostles today, but there are heralds and teachers. The apostles formulated and defended the church by their writing and their teaching, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Task of the heralds to proclaim it. And it's the job of the teachers to give systematic instruction on doctrines and ethics. We don't use the world very much today. Uh, at Christmas time, we sing, Hark the Herald Angels. Herald is not the angel's name. It's, it's not H-A-R-O-L-D. That's just silly. Uh, Hark the Herald, the announcing angels. We don't use the word herald much today. But it, it, it's one who makes an important announcement like an announcer at an athletic event, a political messenger in a royal court, we are heralds. You, Christian, are a herald. To announce, to proclaim, to tell the world that Jesus Christ, the God-man, our mediator, gave himself as ransom. You, Christian, are a herald. Here's the very clear application. You are a herald. So... Announce to people who are lost and dying in their sin that there is Savior, one who conquered death, one who bestows eternal life on those who would believe. This is the logical end of your worship. If you worship the God of the Bible, you will announce to a lost and dying world that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Teacher is a lot more common of a word. Teacher makes sense to us. There's teachers in the room. Uh, teaching clicks, we get it. We just have to do it. We must teach because the need is urgent. There are people in this community who are dying and without generated from God for eternity. We're commissioned. We've been repeating almost every week since May. We are commissioned to teach the nation's Everything Jesus commanded us. It's our job. The Son of God was born to us. He died for us. He was raised from the dead before us. And this great gospel, that's the gospel. This great good news must be made known, both heralded and taught throughout the world. We herald the truth and we teach the good news, like Paul, to the Gentiles. That's the word ta ethne, uh, that is to the people. He says, my job is to preach to the people, not just to the Jewish people, but to the people, to the nations, to everyone. This is our worship. This is how we worship. We pray and we preach, we petition and we proclaim, we intercede and we invite, we thank and we tell. What is the primary task of the church? It's this. Worship, this is what we do. We pray because of God's desire, Christ's death. We pray and we preach in order to add worshipers to the number of those. We do this not just to add to this church body. We pray to add worshipers. I don't care where they are. I don't care where they go. 
to worship the one true God. We just want them worshiping the one. Yes? This is why we pray. This is why we preach. This is what we do. It's on us. Not just talk about it. And that's for me. All day long. Love to talk. I should just, can we just keep going? Right? There's not a big game on or anything. <clears throat> no, I promised Maggie we well in time. So. We do it. This is on us to do. Let's do it, huh? Let's go and let's do. For the glory of God and the good of all the people. Father, we thank you for your word. For this summons, this calling us and a holy God bridging that gap for us. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Love you all. So then